morning, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you've brought your Bibles, you can turn there or uh, scroll there in your device. I do want to mention, I don't think we have any younger children, but this morning's subject matter um, definitely is a little bit difficult and um, uh, challenging even for adults. And so um, this, is, this is one for junior high and, and up. It's, it's a difficult word. Um, the message is titled Trouble in the House. If you were with us last week, you know that David is about to reap what he has sown. He's been forgiven for his sin with Bathsheba and everything that that entailed. He, uh, but he hasn't been absolved from the natural consequences of his sin. Those would remain because they're just reality. Uh, they would, for David, serve to remind both he and others of the seriousness of walking in disobedience. The prophet Nathan had told David, we read this last week in chapter 12, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. We read in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 29, he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. When you bring sin on yourself, on your home and household, you reap the whirlwind, as Hosea talks about as well. The result, it's emptiness. When we sow to the flesh, we reap of the flesh destruction and pain. One commentator I read this past week, he made the point that when you uh, if in the event of sinning, you break your arm, if you repent and go to the Lord, you're forgiven, but your arm is still broken. And there's still a process of time to walk through for healing. There's a cause and effect relationship that we all experience to one degree or another when we choose to walk in sin. God will give us grace for those consequences, but typically, and to varying degrees, we still have to walk through them. That's partly his loving discipline, and partly it's just reality. In this morning's chapter, that, that trouble in David's house continues to unfold, already having begun with the death of he and Bathsheba's child, of course, and, and though it'll follow David essentially for the remainder of his life, there are yet still blessings for David and good things that we will eventually see. He isn't cursed, as we might imagine, but without question, David is being disciplined through the natural consequences of his disobedience. So that is basically the only line of hope in this morning's message. So hold on to that. In terms of David, um, we need to remember that, that though we're going to walk through some darkness here, though we're going to see God's, God's discipline and judgment against his household, at the same time, that's not all that David's life will be. It doesn't characterize everything that he is. There's going to be a lot of grace coming and blessing yet still in David's life, but these practical consequences have to play out in part because of his sin and, and in part as well because of what led to the sin to begin with. So let's pray and we'll look at the first few verses. Father, as we open your word this morning, 
Lord, a, a difficult word. We pray that, Father, you would speak to our hearts, maybe a word of exhortation, maybe one of, of, of hope, of healing, Lord. Even in spite of this focusing on discipline, Lord, um, there, there is a lot here. And we know that, Lord, you have something specific to say to each of us, Lord. There's not a person listening Father, on the internet and the small chapel or here in the warehouse or maybe even later, for which you don't have something very specific to say that applies to where they are at in their life because that's how you work through your word by your Holy Spirit. So we're asking that you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin with verses 1 through 7 as we are introduced to a horrible situation in David's home that's beginning to unfold. Verses 1 through 7, our first point, if you happen to be following along with the outline, is lust and cunning. Verse 1, after this, everything that happened in the last chapter, the pronouncement of both forgiveness but also judgment against David and his, and his house, after this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Absalom is one of David's sons. He had many by his eight wives. Tamar is Absalom's sister. They had the same mother, Maaka, the, the Geshurite. Geshur was a, a small Aramean kingdom about 80 miles north of Jerusalem above the Sea of Galilee, all right? Uh, the, the marriage with David and Maaka was, was likely motivated, motivated by a political alliance between the two nations uh, to help guarantee a, a peaceful coexistence that happened uh, in ancient times, of course. But there's, there's something strange here. Amnon, David's son, by a different uh, wife, a different mother, Ahinoam, that's her name, Amnon loves his half-sister, Tamar. But as we'll see shortly, this is not love in any real sense of the word. This is lust, a carnal and self-serving passion. And in case you're wondering, <laughs> uh, it, it was as weird and as wrong then as it is today. Leviticus 18 and 20, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 27, both specifically forbid any kind of relationship or uh, sexual or, or, or otherwise romantic between brothers and sisters, be they full or half. So uh, Amnon knew that this was wrong. There was no confusion about that. But what's likely is that Amnon, having known that David was able to get away with his own illicit sexual relationship, has been influenced by his father's sin. David, of course, in his home, lacked moral authority because of what has just happened or been unveiled, revealed in his life. At the very least, it didn't feel as bad. And so for that reason and others that we'll see as we make our way through the chapter, David's weakness as a father, his general absence, uh, Amnon is emboldened in this sin. Verse 2, Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. He was so worked up 
in his lust, that he made himself physically ill, this obsession with his half-sister and wanting to be with her. Um, the relationship, it was not only wrong, but it was also impossible from a physical sense because the virgins would have been uh, living and housed separately from everyone else, as was the custom in that time. She was, in effect, inaccessible. Enter Amnon's, quote, friend and cousin, the wicked Jonadab. Verse 3, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So this is David's nephew and Amnon's cousin, and he probably held some position, some official title he had in the royal household. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Why will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Does Jonadab stop him and say, Amnon, this isn't wise, this is sinful. What are you thinking? You need to pursue something healthy and put this notion away. No, as I said before, he's, he's evil. He, he immediately, his mind moves towards how can we accommodate this desire. Verse 5, so Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, cakes of, of, of bread, of meal, that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Amnon, he tells this Jonadab that he is in love with Tamar, but, but of course this is only lust. He's consumed by his sexual fantasies uh, on this woman um, and, and uh, fixation and, and on this woman, excuse me, that he has no business thinking about in this way, um, let alone acting on this attraction. And into this desperate and disgusting sensual mental anguish comes this cousin and friend, David's nephew, Jonadab. And while Amnon's the one who's selfishly obsessed with sin, Jonadab helps him figure out how to accomplish that desire. He gives Amnon this idea about feigning illness, pretending to be sick, the result of which would be for the king, David, his father, to come in and see him, at which time he'll explain how the only thing that would help relieve his suffering would be to have his sister Tamar uh, cook for him that he might regain his strength to nurse him back to health. Jonadab knew exactly what Amnon wanted and was helping to set up the scenario in which he could get it. He's, he's an evil man. They both are. Of course, Amnon, he does exactly this. And sadly, David failed to see what was happening, to discern that, which becomes a little bit of a theme in his home, we're going to find. David, he summons, he calls for Tamar, and unwittingly helped to subject her to her half-brother's wicked scheme to take advantage of her and to use her sexually. 
we need to take this opportunity here in this passage to speak to the problem of lust. Feeding desires in, in unlawful and inappropriate ways. Today, we justify pornography uh, or even physical sexual immorality. Um, that is, any sexual contact or activity outside of a lawfully recognized marriage between a man and a woman. We argue that it doesn't hurt anyone, yet it does. Consenting adults are not islands. We all impact and affect other people. They are harmed. Others in their lives are damaged through that sin, and it grieves the heart of God when we use each other, when we use people for our own ends rather than submit to and obey the word of God. Jesus spoke directly to this issue in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says there, you have heard that it was said of those to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Paul addresses this as well, even more broadly to the church in Corinth, which had all kinds of problems with self-serving and, and lusts of very, various kinds, but certainly uh, sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, he writes, Food is for the stomach and the stomach for, for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, the, the prevailing philosophy in the Corinth culture as is the case in our present day as well, was that the presence of a desire justified the fulfilling of that desire. If you, fulfill, if, excuse me, if you feel a certain way, you need to act on it. It's only natural. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Hey, you get hungry, you should eat. That's what it's there for. Just, just do it effectively. Paul's confronting that idea and he's saying, no, that's, that's actually not right. Our desires are, are given us by God, but, but they've got to be fulfilled in the way in which and according to the parameters that he's designed. And if we step outside of that, not only are we in sin, but we're harming ourselves and others. And, and we'll find ourselves caught in a, in a perpetuating, a self-perpetuating cycle with diminishing results that will not only hurt us, but those that we involve, live with, and are responsible to as well. True wholeness only comes in yielding our lives to Jesus Christ, recognizing and submitting to his lordship and denying ourselves. And this is obviously a profound lie in our culture today, that, that if you're true to yourself, to your heart, however contradictory it is to the word of God, that somehow in that you'll find fulfillment when in reality the opposite is the truth. When we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, it's there that we find freedom and life. 
Verse 15 of that same chapter, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. And then verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Just run from it. Every sin that a man does or woman is outside of the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? That's a revolutionary concept right there. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. None of us has the right to simply do whatever we want or live however we want because our lives, our very bodies don't belong to us. We're, we're, we're inhabited, especially so if we belong to Jesus, if we're members of the body of Christ, we're inhabited by the Holy Spirit and we were bought, we were purchased out of our sin by the blood of Jesus. Our responsibility is to glorify God and we can't do that when we're actively living in and justifying lust and sin. Now we'll read the painful details of what followed Amnon's deceptive plan to lure Tamar into his presence. Our next point, innocence and assault. Verse 8, so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. So Tamar comes assuming and believing that his request was legitimate until he can't stand it anymore. Verse 9, the second half, then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him, all the servants that were, were there. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. This was her brother. She should have been safe. Incest is a terrible, dark sin. When a family member, someone that you should be able to trust, takes advantage sexually of another person. If you've been a victim of this crime, I am truly sorry. I hope that the perpetrator was or will be held accountable. One day, they will be. I remember the first time I even heard about this or began to understand it. I was in elementary school, and I, there actually was a young girl who was describing this happening to her at the hands of her uncle. And as a second grader, I didn't even understand exactly what she was talking about, but I knew enough to recognize something's not right about this. And I also knew based on her telling of the story that her parents did not go to the authorities. The uncle was warned, don't ever do that again. <laughs> they say, yeah, anyway, I have no patience for that. And a family connection should, should not protect someone for answering for their sin and, and uh, don't feel like you have to have some loyalty to someone because they're related to you. Um, they should be held accountable. Along these lines, I'd like to mention, as a general rule and apart from this specific incident of incest and rape, which is about to take place, 
Again, I want us to make a, a separation in our mind for the point that I'm about to make. Um, step back from, from this. It's a one-sided scenario in which Amnon is absolutely guilty and Tamar is innocent. But a word of advice, unless you're married, avoid being in the bedroom or alone in the apartment or house of someone of the opposite sex regardless of your age. You're only setting yourself up for a fall. Now, our context today, again, is rape, and I would never blame the victim in that case. I'm instead, again, speaking generally to sexual sin and preventable circumstances. It's, it's not old-fashioned or prudish to avoid setting yourself up for a fall. If you're dating or even engaged, it's unwise to be alone in the house together. Um, you're just giving opportunity for temptation, stumbling, and the appearance of evil just don't. And if someone's pressuring or even suggesting crossing a line that you know will lead to sin, push back hard. Don't buy the flattery or the manipulation. Stand your ground quite possibly end the relationship. But definitely avoid a scenario where a fall is more likely. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. That's for the benefit of others who don't know what you may or may not be doing behind closed doors as well as for yourself. And again to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of pure heart. My wife and I, when we were dating and even engaged, we, we followed this rule. Um, I knew it was just smart. If you don't want to go there, then don't go there. Um, I had a roommate at the time, and, and, and he was just always around. And, and honestly, we just didn't make our dating life revolve around uh, the, the living room or my, I mean, my apartment was incredibly small anyway, and I did have a roommate, so we just didn't go there. But at her house, we, we would only go there when her parents were there. We would go out. We would be with other people. Now, again, Tamar is completely innocent in this, but is sadly about to be taken advantage of. Verse 11, now, when she had brought them to him to eat this, the bread that she had prepared, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Again, I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Tamar, she desperately tries to reason with him, um, even stalling as she suggests he ask for David's permission, which we assume he would never give uh, anyway, beings as this relationship um, was illicit according to the law. Uh, but she's desperate. She's hoping that maybe Amnon will come to his senses, but he doesn't. She pleads, begging him that he'll be considered a fool and that she'll be left forever damaged. But sadly, like David, Amnon allowed himself to be ruled by his lust. Verse 14, 
However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which with he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. These verses are so sad. He had devastated her. Um, would she ever marry now that she was no longer a virgin, which was a real question in that day. She was marked by his sin. And beyond that, they'd been alone. So it would be his word against hers. Not only had she been used by Amnon, but now she was being rejected by him as well, treated like garbage by her own brother. It's terrible. Verse 17, that he called his servants who attended him and said, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now, she had, been, she had on a robe of many colors that should remind you of Joseph and his brothers from the book of uh, Genesis. Um, it would be worn by someone of privilege in the household. She took that robe uh, for the king's virgin daughters, wore such apparel. Um, we'll read in a moment that she, she rent her garment, she tore it, but, and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and she tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. Amnon, he cruelly and uh, coldly banishes her from his presence after he's used her. And so she leaves mourning. Verse 15, the, the contrast is so stark then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which with he had loved her. There's, there's this thin line between lust and hatred. So selfish and, and fixated on, on one's own desire is lust that it easily gives way to hatred once it's been satisfied because that other person only represents a distraction from, uh, from self. It also seems a natural thing that, that objects of our lust, which we believed would provide relief and fulfillment and fail to do so as they only can, would then become the object of our hatred and anger. Tamar now only reminded Amnon of his sin. He didn't love her. He'd only used her. And her pain and grief was a frustration and an annoyance to him. But like so many sins, the effects are nowhere near done. Our third point this morning, exposed and devising. Verse 20, and Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister, he is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother's, brother Absalom's house. Absalom sees that her robe is torn, that she's in mourning. She's weeping. Maybe she says Amnon's name in between crying. Maybe word has spread of what happened in the household or, or speculation, but he figures it out. He puts it together. 
And Tamar, she's not trying to hide Amnon's guilt. She knows that, that this was sin and that it was his fault. She doesn't blame herself. Absalom understands what's happened, and he is infuriated. But for now, he focuses on comforting his sister. Tries to downplay the situation, maybe recognizing that this would bring shame to the family or, or that it will be dealt with at a later time. It's difficult to know, but, but once again, he's seeking to comfort her while internally he is plotting revenge. Verse 21, but when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. We might wonder why she didn't go to King David to begin with. It's strange that he's absent from the story at this point, apart from just getting emotional about it. Maybe she was closer to her full brother. Again, the, the picture that's painted of David is that of an absent and an undisciplined father. He's uninvolved in the lives of his children. He has too many wives, and he's, he's failed to adequately invest in each of his kids' lives as he should have been. Tamar had probably seen his leniency toward his sons, and maybe Amnon in particular as the firstborn and heir to the throne. David would get mad, but he wouldn't take action. Maybe she couldn't bear to go before him and see him do nothing, and so she simply went to her brother. David should have been the one standing up for his daughter, Tamar. He should have been holding Amnon accountable, dragging him before the law that justice might be exacted against him. But his authority, again, it was weakened and diminished through his sin. Tragically, all David does is it's nothing more than, than get angry, as we read, which didn't help Tamar or Amnon or Absalom, as we'll see. Verse 22, and Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. They just didn't speak to one another. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. You might remember earlier in our study in Samuel when David was in exile from the kingdom hiding from Saul, and, and he and his men were in the south in the Judean wilderness. And it was actually Nabal, the same time of year when he was feasting during the time of sheep shearing, that David and his men came because it was customary to celebrate that. It was like the harvesting season, only the harvesting was of wool, not of actual crops from the land. Well, that's about to happen for Absalom. Each of the sons, probably they would be given um, gifts from their father in, in terms of herds and uh, fields. And Absalom is managing his own inheritance. And it's time to celebrate the bounty and God's blessing 
on the herds. And so this time of feasting comes. Verse 24, then Absalom said to the king, excuse me, came to the king and said, kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and the servants go with your servant. He's inviting his father, the king, to come with his household to this great party at his uh, property, which is 10 miles away from Jerusalem. Verse 25, but the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. David says, Absalom, I appreciate the offer, but there are so many of us. If we come, we're going to overwhelm you. It's a kind gesture. Thank you, but no thank you. God bless you. Well, David politely declines the invitation, but Absalom has something else in mind, and actually just inviting David, even though he didn't come, help to legitimize this event, which is going to turn into a plot of murder against Amnon. Because now that David has said no, Absalom can then move on and invite the next in line, Amnon, who could come and represent the kingdom. And Amnon will feel safe, and David will not have any concerns about sending Amnon, because after all, David himself was invited to go, so surely this is all going to be on the up and up. Amnon will feel confident about it, and so will David. And so Amnon accepts Absalom's invitation to this feast, and he goes, as do actually all of his brothers. And perhaps everyone's assuming at this point that the bitterness between Absalom and Abnon has subsided. Didn't David knew that the two hadn't spoken in two years? Maybe he didn't because again, he, he's distanced from his own family. Or maybe he was willfully ignorant. Sometimes we can be guilty of that in our homes. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to get involved. David needed to get involved. Verse 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servants saying, watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Verse 29, so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. David's failure to deal with Amnon had further fueled Absalom's hatred for this man who had so violently assaulted his sister. He felt that something had to be done. And so he used this feast to lure Amnon into a, a setting where he could punish him away from the palace. Once the party had been underway for a while and, and Amnon had had plenty to drink, Absalom's servants killed him, at which time his brothers fled, fearing for their own lives. Now, apart from the obvious darkness and evil of this chapter, there are a lot of warnings for you and I. Are we giving place to hatred and, and evil, jealousy and lust in our own hearts? Sometimes those passions, they, they play on a loop 
in our minds. And we're so accustomed to them that we forget that they're even there. Did Amnon deserve some sort of punishment? You bet he did. Was it Absalom's job to carry it out through murder? No. There are injustices that we suffer for which it is not our job personally to handle, but it is for us to, to trust the Lord. It may be for us to trust and wait uh, through a system, a process. Backing up further to Amnon's own sin, it could be an issue of, of lust or something else in our lives. We're going to find with Absalom, there's more going on here than just hatred for Amnon and his sin against his sister. Absalom, he wants more than just Amnon's blood. He wants his position in line for the throne, and he won't be finished with that effort in this chapter. Sometimes we're trying to hold on to something instead of trusting God for it. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he speaks to many issues of the heart, doesn't he? In fact, he takes the law which the, the Jewish leaders and, the, and the, the Israelites, they thought they understood, and he elevated it to the level, uh, a higher level, that of the heart. Multiple times he would say to them, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, See, they thought that just the exterior keeping of the law was what God was interested in. But Jesus clarified and said, no, it's deeper than that. God's looking at the heart. Because what, what starts in the heart, what's, what's kept and, and preserved and nurtured there will eventually manifest in our actions in Matthew 5.21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Hatred. Having hatred in our hearts. Jesus said the Father looks at that and he, and he sees it as if murder has been committed. Unchecked hatred, lust, and envy, it'll, it'll eventually manifest in actual sin in our lives. Least it consume us, we need to repent and deal with it before the Lord. Now, again, while it goes without saying that Amnon is guilty and the death penalty would have been justifiable, it wasn't for Absalom to carry out as judge and jury and, and the warning for us stands. We need to be careful to guard our hearts in these scenarios. Now, finally, let's look at verses 30 through 39, misinformation and escape. Verse 30, and it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons and not one of them is left. I, I read someone this past week who said that bad news, it tends to travel fast and be exaggerated. This wasn't true, uh, but, but it was close. Amnon was dead, but word reached David this way. So the king arose and tore his garment and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, here's our friend Jonadab again. He seems to be an opportunist, and he finds himself in these situations and, and exploits them for his own benefit. 
Jonadab, the son of Shimei, a David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young man, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. And we completely skip over the issue that it was Jonadab's planning that helped that event to even take place. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king take this, the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Jonadab, he's bold. I read the story, and he's kind of like this Eddie Haskell character, you know, smiling but, but evil, like he's, he's plotting and conniving. Uh, you can't trust him. He steps here in this moment to intervene. He's not committed to Amnon. He's just looking to benefit himself by helping in the moment whoever's got power. And right now, he wants to be the one to console the king and give him the good news that not all of his sons are dead. And in fact, maybe there's an element of justice to Amnon's death to begin with. Um, you kind of wish Jonadab gets killed in this story. He doesn't. Uh, though eventually I'm sure justice found him. Now, verses 34 through 39, last finally here. Then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming. As your servant said, so it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom. For he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So in the wake of Absalom's murderous rage, uh, his brother's retreat, he escapes to his grandfather's kingdom in the north where he'll wait out David's displeasure. He's going to stay there for some three years until we'll, we'll find that he finally gets invited back. Joab, the commander of Israel's army, kind of intervenes, brokers a peace deal, but once Absalom does even come to Jerusalem, he actually lives separately and doesn't see David. David doesn't want to see him for two full years. So it's a little difficult to understand how is this completely resolved and is it even? What we do know, though, is that Amnon, having been murdered by Absalom, is only the first part in Absalom's plan to eventually take the kingdom. He wants the throne, and he'll be plotting that for the next five years. Not the most encouraging chapter today, but a warning. And as I said before, though today's word, not to mention what's been happening and the trend in David's life, it's difficult there is encouragement and hope coming. But a question we should ask ourselves as we come to the end of our time together is, how do we trouble our own houses today? Our message today was titled, Trouble, trouble in the House, speaking of David's house. The trouble he'd brought through his focus on his own self and his, his sin and his, his lusts, it, it had 
in part contributed to him being an absent father, which had all kinds of ramifications. But how are you and I sowing to the flesh, to the wind, such that a harvest of the flesh, the whirlwind, is coming? Maybe it already has come. Are you toying with things that you know are offensive to the heart of God? Entertaining lusts, the possibility of, of an affair, of committing or engaging in some sin that's going to bring destruction. God's called you and I to repent. Maybe you're dragging your feet. It's a relationship that needs to be cut off. A connection, an activity, an interaction, maybe a habit or a rut, the refusal to bring accountability into your life. You might imagine that you can act selflessly. Excuse me. You might imagine that you can act selfishly in your home and that it won't affect others or that you can do the same in the church but it will. It'll impact the whole. The consequences are felt. The whirlwind is reaped, sometimes for many years. History records the tragic story. It's been a tragic chapter. We might as well end on a tragic story, right? History records for us, though, that there is a tragic story of one grossly overweight 14th century Duke of Belgium, Reynald III commonly called by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. I read that after a violent quarrel, Reynolds' younger brother, Edward, had led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynold, but did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynold in the Newark castle and promised he could be, regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room, which sounds strange. It would have been difficult, would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and a door of near normal size. And it wasn't locked or even barred. The problem was Reynold's size. To regain his freedom, he had to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother, and each day he sent a variety of delicious foods. Instead of dying in his, dying in his way, dieting his way out of the prison, Reynold grew larger. When Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he so wills. It is told that Reynold remained in prison in that room for 10 years and wasn't released until after Edward was killed in battle. By then, his health was so ruined, he died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. Some of us live as though we have no choice. Prisoners of our own appetites, enslaved to our lusts and sin, when the reality is that God has called us to, that the Holy Spirit can empower us to, Jesus is able to free us to live in freedom. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 12 reads, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, which is our actual state if we are followers of Jesus Christ. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you. <laughs> That's a declaration of truth as much as it is a commandment. For you are not under law, but under grace. May the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit free you and I from enslavement to sin. That rather than trouble, we would bring blessing on our houses, on our household, on the kingdom, and on the work of God. Let's stand as we pray and are joined by Pastor Frankie and the worship team as we take the opportunity to close in worship. Father, as we end our time together, Lord, we've already, I, it doesn't need to be stated, this is clearly a, a dark chapter, Lord. But sin is dark in its consequences and in its real effect on our lives and on others. So it's healthy that we would take, take this in and allow it to impact our, our hearts and our lives. that we wouldn't take sin lightly, that we would stop acting like we have no choice, that we would stop telling ourselves and others that we're prisoners when the door is open. We're simply enslaved to our own lusts. Jesus, help us to take up our cross and follow you to... to execute the only right remedy for sin in our lives, which is to crucify the flesh. Jesus, that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would take up our cross and follow you, that in desperation we would cry out to be filled with your Holy Spirit, recognizing that the cost to you in your blood poured out for us at Calvary, recognizing the, the, the danger, the fallout, the, the, the price and the cost to ourselves and others when we sin. Notwithstanding forgiveness, Lord, that we would soberly see the heavy cost of our disobedience. Lord, and, and that as well as love for you would drive us to a, a, a real and passionate dependence on your grace. Lord, a desire to walk in your spirit, to, to flee every appearance of evil, To be holy as you are holy. 
Jesus, that your life would transcend and, and overwhelm us. That you would fill every place of our lives. That you would help us to open to you and give you access to every dark corner. Jesus, that your blood would wash over us in a fresh way. That we would find liberation and freedom in your spirit. And as we sing this final song of worship to the Lord, let it, let it be a, a song of determination to forget the things that are behind and press forward to what lies ahead. Let it, let it be a standing in the cleansing blood of Jesus. Maybe a, a choosing to find your identity in Christ and not in the past, not in your sin, and not in sin committed against you. Because you may find yourself this morning the innocent victim of this terrible chapter. The Lord sees you, sees your broken heart, And he says that he's come to mend and to heal it. That you're whole in him. That you're his daughter, you're his son. Jesus, that whatever state we find ourselves in, however we came in, to this warehouse this morning that in this moment we would find healing and wholeness forgiveness and restoration please meet us here in Jesus name